Welcome back to the uh, next episode of the Immuno Buddies. Uh, I'm joined with Anna again. Morning, Anna. Morning. Uh, and so today we're going to cover nephritis. I think this is a really interesting topic, although I think can be a little bit challenging. Um, and I've certainly had challenges around this in terms of thinking about the pathway. So again, it'd be great to tap into uh, Anna's experience and, and knowledge in this area. So Anna, let's get straight into it. And and maybe this might sound like a slightly atypical place to start, but I, I just wonder if we just think about the terminology that we use, because often in, in, in nephritis, we're talking about, oh, this patient's developed an acute kidney injury. I just wonder if we should quickly um, maybe just define what we understand by an acute kidney injury. Um, and and maybe if I just sort of give what I understand to be the basic definitions and you tell me if that's, you know, something that you're using in practice. So acute kidney injury for me, Anna, is, and, and I just use the, the the guidance that's out there. So looking at creatinine rises of, of more than 26 within 48 hours or a serum creatinine rise of more than 1.5 times from the reference value. Um, assumed to be within one week or oliguria um, or a greater than 25% for an EGFR but that's primarily for younger patients. I guess simply it, it, do we are you happy with the terminology of AKI? Yeah I, I, I think AKI, kidney injury, renal impairment, um, all of these sort of terms that we use sort of slightly synonymously although AKI has got the most the most sort of um, solid definitions I think they present quite a challenge for us in this patient group because I think one of those things we see kidney function vary quite a lot and certainly quite a lot of patients will have pre-existing kidney disease some of them will, will be treating with renal cells so they'll have a, a poor baseline um, so I think it's really interesting um, to try and navigate when to diagnose nephritis actually I think it's probably the hardest um, because because kidney function and the way that we monitor it is probably the most fluctuant of all of those numbers um, at the point where we go, well, is this just because they haven't had enough to drink today? Is this because of pre-existing issues? Is this because they're taking a bit more of an NSAID? Or is this actually that there is a genuine immune process going on there? So I, I think I think the definitions of AKI are helpful because it alerts us to the fact there's a problem. I think then the next question is, how do we then start unpicking it? And obviously we'll talk about how we do that. But I do think it's one of the more di diagnostically challenging toxicities to to diagnose because I think there is a, a risk of overdiagnosis or in fact underdiagnosis. So it's quite it's quite a difficult one, I think. Um, but I do find that our standardized um, processes allow us to have an alerting mechanism because not only do we have an AKI definition, but also quite a lot of trusts and hospitals will then have a process by which there's an AKI alert in place. So the clinical team are alerted by the lab teams if there's if there's high if there's sort of if, if it's alerting as an AKI level. And so there's a good process by picking these patients up. It's then it's then what we do with them. But I, I do think having any kind of framework is a useful thing to use. And I think we use it in IO nephritis as well, we, as well as we do in any other thing that causes renal, renal impairment. Great. OK, so we're happy with AKI. So we're just going to use that term as uh, you know intermittently as we go through. So let's start where we normally start, Anna, um, and think about, you know, uh, incidents and risk factors, because we, we normally like to start there. You know, my sort of my experience when I'm talking about nephritis to people and they ask me about the risk of nephritis 
I normally quote somewhere around the, you know, five to maybe seven percent for combination treatments. And then I tend to give if they ask about single agent, I normally estimate around two percent. And I have to be honest, for this toxicity, I often say that CTLA four and PD one as a rule, have similar incidences. I know that you've done some recent work, so I'd be interested to see what you think your real-life figures or what your experience tells you in terms of incidents. I think it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? So, yes, yeah, so we do have some real-life experience. So there's, there's, there's our sort of own personal experience at Clatterbridge. So we... Um, at the time we did this data cut, we treated around two and a half thousand people with um, checkpoint inhibitors. And we've got about 190 confirmed cases of nephritis in that same period of time. So sort of somewhere between that sort of eight and 10 percent sort of uh, mark is is about right. It's interesting. There is some literature that says that the real life experience is is potentially a little bit higher than that, somewhere between 9.9 and 29 percent. So I think it's variable and it depends a little bit on how you define it and whether you include grade ones or everybody that's had renal renal um, impairment. Um, on a checkpoint inhibitor so I think it's it all comes down to the definition but our patients who we've had sort of uh, a question and then we've confirmed and treated um, uh, them for it is about 190 out of around two and a half thousand. Okay um, okay so I think we're fairly comfortable with the the sort of ballpark percentages um, and then again you know we always say in, in our caveats when our talks that iotoxicity can occur at any time and it can occur after you've finished treatment Again, my experience and, and, and certainly when I've been reviewing the literature in the past, you know, that the ballpark that often gets estimated again. So if you think about context, skin often occurs early. And, you know, we talked about, um, you know, where colitis and hepatitis come. For me, nephritis, if I was estimating the average, it would be around the three to four month ballpark you know, accepting all the caveats I've just given. Again, any thoughts on when you expect in inverted commas to see it? Yeah, so that that's that's um, about about what we would say in terms of our, our median onset as well. It's interesting there was there was um some data from the literature that looked at ipilimumab and, and anti-PD ones in, in different sort of settings and sort of found that anti-CTLA4 uh, sort of the average onset was from soon six to twelve weeks but could but could be seen up to six months after the commencement of treatment. Conversely, with the anti-PD-1s, between three and 12 months seem to be the more sort of usual bracket, but again, uh, but again, could, could go on longer. So I think it's interesting, the CTLA-4, um, even on its own in single agent, does seem to cause a, a nephritis picture earlier on in, in treatment. Um, but I, as, I, as we always say, we can see it after first cycle, but I think overall it's a, it's a slightly later toxicity that we see after commencing therapy. Okay. Um and we're going to talk later about um, biopsy and histological subtypes. But you already mentioned NSAIDs. You, you, you mentioned about the NSAIDs and the risk of NSAIDs um, um, in terms of AKI. Do you, in terms of things like PPIs and NSAIDs, do you see them as uh, in your differential for when you see an AKI? Or do you see them as potentially contributing to a checkpoint inhibitor-induced nephritis? No, I think it's really interesting that my, my thoughts about this have, uh, have evolved over, over time, really. So I think, you know, going back to medical school, we're always taught to think about those those drugs, those nephrotoxic drugs that a patient might be on. Um, and so for me, there's always NSAIDs, ACE inhibitors, and then latterly and more more recently PPIs. Um, but that, that was sort of been part of the dialogue for, you know, for at least 10 years now. Um, so I'd definitely, so it's sort of, when we were doing this initially, I think, you know, when people come in with, with the uh, 
AKI and we think it might be an IO related issue, I will still always hold or navigate those nephrotoxic drugs so we can we can hold them off. But increasingly looking at um, whether there is actually a propensity to contribute to the sort of the occurrence of the of the nephritis in the first place, I think there is some increasing evidence, including some of, of our own experience, that shows that PPIs particularly are potentially of concern. Um, and I think we we are, we need more data. But I think we may get to a point where um, where PPIs are something that we we either review whether they're actually necessary or think to switch to a different drug in our patients who are receiving checkpoint inhibitors. And I think that that ties into lots of conversations, not just about um, the kidney, but also things like the gut microbiome. So I think increasingly we are worried about the role of PPIs in, in this patient group. And I think it's one of those things that's a risk benefit, isn't it? If a patient needs to be on them and they've got good good need and you know the actual sort of pathological problems with the with sort of their their reflux etc then yes it's probably the risk benefit is in favor of continuing it but I think PPIs are one of those drugs that actually quite a lot of people are on and they start them in the acute setting and then sort of continue and it's never reviewed so I think there is something about going back to those concomitant medications at the beginning of treatment and saying actually do you actually need to be on all of these therapeutics or actually can can we think about removing them and certainly increasingly PPIs are on that list of things that I, I really sort of look at and, and scrutinise as to whether we need them or not, because the data evolving does suggest that it may actually predispose to a, to a degree of renal impairment. Okay, because I have to be honest now and say that with PPIs, I don't use PPI when I'm starting steroid doses less than 40 milligrams. That's where I've fallen down for the time being. Um, you, Anna, what, what are you doing? Yeah, so we still are, but I, but I'm... I, I'm increasingly wondering whether we should be or not. I think, you know, when I think that, you know, the evidence of of the combination, you know, they're not licensed together as cu- as as couplet um therapeutics. Um so it is it does make you wonder. And then I certainly I know other other centers in the country are using um things like fermetidine rather than rather than a PPI. I certainly I worry about so the, the PPIs are also um enzyme inhibitors as well so they are not the easiest drugs I think we use them very very frequently so we are still using them but in low doses certainly don't use high dose PPIs with my steroid for for people on steroids and I think increasingly we're we're sort of potentially moving away from it although we haven't changed just yet okay that's interesting um that's really interesting and 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 absolutely just for the audience we are going to be covering the microbiome in the not too distant future i I really you know uh the bifidum bacteria story is something that i get very excited about it's Um, pretty cool isn't it i think i think we we will we will talk we'll have a whole podcast about it which is quite exciting wait with bated breath for everyone But um, but I think you know this this presents us so many questions at the moment. There's more questions than answers in terms of what we do in terms of translatability through to clinical practice. But I think it's something that is going to evolve and change quite quickly. So it is really worth sort of having that background, and we'll go through all of the, the sort of the the questions and the whys and the wherefores, and then we'll, we'll I think we probably will end up doing another another podcast six months later to say oh, this is how it's changed practice. So I'm not quite sure we know yet, but we certainly think it's going to, don't we? It's just difficult to know. But yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll, we'll, we'll after that teaser, we'll come back at some point relatively soon with a whole podcast on it we will we, we might see if we can get Monty Powell I, I, I'm saying this out loud I've absolutely not asked him but I would love to hear his uh, thoughts around the melanoma landscape but absolutely. let's park it right so two other things I just wanted to bring out then Anna and again one of these is me sort of airing my dirty laundry so 
um, I made the mistake of sort of missing an AKI in somebody who was quite cachexic and had fairly low muscle mass because uh, I hadn't really put two and two together and thought about the fact that they're likely to start with a low creatinine. And so they essentially doubled their creatinine, with, but were just about in the normal range. Um, and I didn't really pick up that AKI. So I think it's just, uh, again, I, I, I don't think we need to discuss it, but I, I just wanted to bring out the, the, the correlation between decreased muscle mass and, and creatinine. I do I do think it's a really good point though Ricky I think because actually I think we forget about it and I think it's worth being aware that the that you know if somebody's got a creatinine of sort of between 20 and 30 you know actually a creatinine of 100 is really really concerning for them and I had a a case recently of somebody that we'd we'd recognize they'd got significant um, kidney injury but they had a creatinine of around 230 which everybody was sort of not underwhelmed about obviously that's 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 very reasonable but was sort of like well it's it's pretty high but it's not too terrible but when you realized that her baseline creatinine was 23 it actually probably was the equivalent of somebody with a normal starting creatinine of around a thousand so actually it really does make a big difference in terms of so just really understanding a patient's baseline both for that point where you're recognizing something that hasn't necessarily been flagged by an internal system but also thinking about where you're trying to get a patient back to so at the other end of the scale if they've always got a relatively high creatinine whatever you do to them if they get an nephritis you're never going to get them below that so actually understanding a patient's baseline for all io but very 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 importantly for for sort of kidney related issues understanding where they're starting really is important because you know that's you know that's that's where you're sort of slightly aiming for in terms of getting them back to so really important both ends of the spectrum i would say Okay, and then I just thought I'd bring out the other the other bit, Anna, about because obviously I treat renal cancer, and so lots of my patients are in that group you describe with creatinines of you know let's say one eighty as their as their baseline. So my experience is that I don't worry about patients who've not got a great. Um, renal function in terms of giving them checkpoint inhibitors um, and, and part of that is because my understanding is that these drugs aren't really cleared by the kidney but I, I just be keen for your thoughts about those patients I, I guess what what what's your thoughts around patients who've got renal impairment and you're starting checkpoint inhibitors and and again not that we're going to cover this in great detail today but what about patients who are on dialysis what are you how do you think about those patients if you're going to start them on a checkpoint inhibitor so um, so you're absolutely right so we don't we don't worry about the um their, their starting kidney function and the spcs say that there's no there's no need to to alter um, your practice in, in people with with CKD so um, so it, it's one of those where we do use and I've certainly got patients who've got very significant CKD who we've used um, checkpoint inhibitors in without any issue whatsoever and um, so I think it's it's one of those cases of we don't know how much a background kidney problem it predisposes you to, to nephritis I think that's probably a question that we haven't yet answered but in terms of the drug clearance and handling of the drug um, it doesn't it doesn't appear to make any difference so it's it's certainly not a contraindication which I think is quite reassuring because because we'll have lots of patients in 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 that setting both with the fact that we we have drug indications where there's a fairly elderly population also drug indications where they've got quite a lot of comorbidities and quite and quite clearly cardiovascular um, issues often leads to renal impairment um, and also we do have some drugs that we use in the transplant setting as you were alluding to so so it's it's fine to use them in those settings in terms of um 
when to when to treat them we don't tend to treat a, a patient on dialysis on a, dialy a dialysis day so if they're hemodialyzing they normally dialyze three times a week either monday wednesday friday or tuesday thursday saturday so we tend to treat them on an, a non-dialysis day but that's really for logistics more than anything else um but and we've certainly seen patients on on dialysis respond so it doesn't appear to impact on the the therapeutic benefit that patients get from uh, get from treatment if they are a dialysis patient it's just a slightly more complicated logistical question I would say. Okay and so then just just let's push on to that for a second so in terms of uh, us not being worried about it uh, and, and I, don't, I don't know if I know the answer to this Anna so is it because we're saying that the drug will stimulate their own t-cells and therefore it doesn't matter but or are we saying that the dialysis won't remove the checkpoint inhibitor what are we saying? They're really big proteins so normally the checkpoints don't get dialyzed out um, so, so I think in terms of the therapeuticness, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's the fact that the the drug and the the, the, you know, the actionable uh, target is actioned upon by the, the the immune cells, and so as long as the drugs activated them, then actually your therapeutic benefit will continue. But yeah, no, the the drugs don't appear to be dialysed out. So I think I, it's always a question that I get from um, ITU consultants. So if a patient ends up needing to go to ITU for any reason, they'll always ask us about whether we need to try and remove the drug. Um, and and it's it's a difficult one because the, the data on it is is poor, um, and and it hasn't really been studied particularly extensively. But there doesn't appear to be a need to dialyze these drugs out, and doesn't appear to do anything. Um, so uh, so I don't think certainly we've, we've never we, we've never given dialysis for somebody who's got a, a, a different toxicity and it's normally not because they've got a, a, a kidney impairment normally it's because they've got raging toxicity for somewhere else particularly pneumonitis and but the IT doctors quite rightly say do we need to do something about the drug um, and we, we've never we've we've never um never seen a, a need or a benefit to do that Great. Okay. Well, look, Anna, I think let's bring this section to a close and then let's pick up in podcast two uh, about how we're thinking about some of the differential diagnoses uh, and some of the investigations we might do. So I'll see you again shortly. See you there.